Hello, partners. On this episode, Richard Gerling from Mindful Badges here. We're going to challenge some of your preconceived notions about meditation and mindfulness and the things that it is and what it isn't and how it's going to make you a better tactical athlete and warrior. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody that's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where is the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Cops running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Uh, hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California. And on this show, we try to tease out knowledge, skills, abilities, things we can learn from subject matter experts from other cops, from people who have something to say, who can maybe improve our lives in one way or another with the goal of being better first responders, better officers, better husbands and wives, better sons and brothers and daughters and sisters. And how can we bring these things into our own, into our lives? And we do this through the lens of our badges, not just the badge that we hold on our chest and that we've sworn an oath to uphold, but the badges in our life, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And today, my guest is a repeat guest, a fantastic guest to talk about these badges. And one of the very first critical things we have to do to get better, to become better, and to move forward. And that is how to develop self-awareness and how to develop a practice of mindfulness. Now, you will probably have your preconceived notions about mindfulness. And I should title this episode Tactical Mindfulness for the Tactical Warrior or something like that. Just to convince you that it's not a woo-woo, hippy-dippy kind of idea. Awareness comes in many forms. And Richard, uh, our guest, is going to explain many of those things. But it's one of the most paramount changes that I've made in my life is focusing on my own self-awareness and on how to be aware of, of my place in the world and holding that space. And it is one of the hardest things to do as well. It's easy to start a physical regimen or a nutrition plan. Those things are in front of you. Those things are things you can see. There are known metrics that you can follow to achieve success or, or to identify if you've succeeded or failed. And mindfulness, unfortunately, is not like that at all. Mindfulness is a practice there's no such thing as perfection in this, and it is a moving target, and uh, it's 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 a challenge. But it will make it will absolutely make you a better cop. It will absolutely make you uh, more empathetic and compassionate and sympathetic with your spouse. It will absolutely reduce your anger. It will help you. Re- it will reveal things to you. It will reveal truths to you that you knew were there, but you weren't sure how to deal with. That might be a woo answer right there. But the point is, is, is 
I've explored uh, the mindfulness and self-awareness stuff quite a bit. That's probably been the biggest thing I've taken away from my guests, more than the physical fitness stuff and the nutrition. It's the mindfulness and self-awareness stuff. And I'm not perfect with my meditation practice, but I am definitely improving in and instituting a self-awareness practice that I am really happy with. So my guest today is Dr. Richard, not doctor, Lieutenant, should be a doctor. He might be, he will be soon, I imagine. Uh, but he is a, he is a teacher uh, at the college level. Anyway, Lieutenant Richard Gerling, now retired Lieutenant Richard Gerling, just about a week ago. Uh, he runs Mindful Badge and he has been on the national news and NBC came out and did a thing with him in LAPD where he teaches officers how to tap into some of that self-awareness to become uh, less stressed out, how to reduce cortisol, and how to use those things in everything else we do in our lives. Uh, we have a great conversation here where he talks about mindfulness as being part of his his belief that it's human performance optimization and that every interaction we have with another human is part of our performance and not from a theatrical sense, like you're acting, but from uh, are you able to perform the tasks and duties of being a human? It's a really interesting idea. He talks about the four interventions that are important to him and that he thinks every law enforcement officer should have uh, in dealing with trauma. And he's got an opinion about trauma that I think needs to be heard more and more. Uh, and and our, not only our interaction with it, but our, our beliefs about it. Uh, we talk about vulnerability and being vulnerable and your fixed and growth mindset and the difference between compassion and empathy and how to cultivate self-awareness and uh, all sorts. It was a great conversation. I could have talked for three hours with him, but we had to cut it off because, you know, he's a busy guy. So check him out on just uh, check him out at Mindful Badge and uh, and take a listen to this and let him know uh, and let me know either in the comments or on the show notes or uh, on socials at the, at, you can hit me at, at the squad room or on our Facebook group. If you've got a self-awareness or meditation or mindfulness practice and what it means to you and, and what it is. All right. So here we are with Richard Gerling. Richard Gerling of mindful badge. Welcome back to the squad room. Thank you, Garrett. Great to be here. It's this, uh, this revisit has been uh, over two years in the making. The last time, we actually got to sit down in person, which was a, a great experience for me. I really enjoyed our time together. You were here uh, teaching another agency, not from my jurisdiction, but another agency that was in town for a full retreat with you. And uh, I got the chance to uh, jump in, pick you up at the airport, go to lunch, and then have a conversation before you went off and taught them. And, uh, you know, a lot has happened in the police profession in the last two years around uh, mindfulness training. And it seems like it's really grown in acceptance around the country. And so the first question I wanted to ask was, do you, is that true? Do you find that to be true? And what has your experience been in the last two years since we first spoke? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for, uh, thanks for the time down in your part of the country. Last time we, we met, that was really good to visit in person. You know, so I think, yes, the, the interest in mindfulness has certainly grown. Um, it's an interesting sort of paradox, however. You know, the interest in mindfulness is growing in part because so much of what we're trying to do in law enforcement isn't working. You know, so much of the really the issues around health and well-being and, and 
sometimes performance. Most of the time, we're very myopic. We just consider this idea of officer wellness, which is, um, isn't going to work for us. And we can talk more about that. But the interest around mindfulness is really looking at how do we bring in training? How do we add one more thing to this plethora of, uh, of a menu of training that we are offering law enforcement officers? So in, in one way, it's really good. In another way, we still struggle to step outside of this traditional paradigm of how we're looking at this issue. And this issue really is is a bigger, broader thing beyond wellness. And I like to frame the conversation around human performance optimization. And we look at what does that mean? So what does human performance mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but let's first look at all the domains that we potentially have to consider. And certainly one is work. And there's multiple sort of subsets within work. It's uh, the interpersonal skills of the people we work with. It's the um, the actual tradecraft that we might have in various jobs within this discipline. And some of those are administrative, and most of those are out in the field. They're operational, they're tactical. But we also have just the performance domains of, of home, of family, performance domains of just community and all the ways that those break down. If we're, you know, we're coaching basketball or little league or soccer, or going to our faith community, or just going to other sort of social tribes that we create everywhere that we have an opportunity to show up with another human being is a performance domain. And I think we broaden our idea of what performance is all about. We really look at training skills ultimately in humanity, which is sort of a broad, a very broad uh, concept, but mindfulness touches on these really fundamental skills of what it means to be a human and how to navigate the world through all of its complexities, through all of its challenges, and and frankly, through its its stress and trauma, or maybe said differently, through its suffering. And so we aren't quite there yet in how our leadership paradigm of the policing institution here in America looks at mindfulness. Uh, but we're beginning to shift the conversation. We're beginning to make some course corrections on how we strategically vision out how to care for the men and women who daily lace up their boots, go out in the field, and do the very, very difficult work of policing in their communities. Uh, that's it. I've never, and this is why I had you on, I've never thought of mindfulness as a performance aspect of, of, of my life. And I like how you said it. And I tried to write it down fast, but how every time we show up with another human being is an opportunity for a performance, uh, not a performance like acting, but you said it better than me, but, um, and, and I got to think about that for a second because you're right. I mean, in, in our job, we're always out contacting people and we're doing pet stops or car stops or community interactions. But so we focus a lot on those things, but so much of our lives and so much of our stress and so much of the things that devolve uh, are the things that are at home and how we show up with our family or how we show up with our friends or, frankly, how we end up not showing up for those people, right? Um, and so to, to frame that as part of our human performance, is, that's, that's really interesting. So there's a lot of confusion these days around what actually mindfulness is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a buzzword by itself and, um, you know, there's magazines and books and people are talking about it. It's a hashtag these days. But how do you as a practitioner but and, and someone who teaches us, how do you define mindfulness? Yeah, you know, mindfulness, um, 
the term itself has really started to annoy me, but it's just a word, man. First of all, mindfulness is just a word and it means all kinds of things in different places that you go. In context to policing, in context to these high reliability organizations, even beyond policing, mindfulness is a practice in the skills of paying attention, Mm. of discernment, of self-awareness and self-regulation. And, you know, the the way I would define mindfulness is that it produces, these skills produce the ability to take in information and use wisdom and discernment. It offers us what we might call um, response intelligence. So that's a kind of an interesting term that my one of my co-trainers, Brian Shires, and, and I made up. But this idea of response intelligence is I'm not reactive. I'm responding with intelligence, not the IQ kind of intelligence necessarily, but just in a smart, sound way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then finally, it, it's about clarity, clarity of mind, clarity of being. And so this notion that what mindfulness is in the context to our warrior arena, it's discernment, response, intelligence, and clarity. And so those are the components really that lead to this idea again of equanimity of peak performance of moving into flow states with the greatest possible skill. Where are you finding the roadblocks to more acceptance? Is it still just this idea that it's uh, a, a woo-woo kind of, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, hippie idealism? Uh, I mean, is that where it is? and Or is it with it, with chiefs and spending money or with the, the line-level guys who just want to like paint it black and put Velcro? on it uh and somali or where is that coming from (laughs) yeah um there's many sources of of obstacles when it comes to looking at how to train how to train the human being with mindfulness skills and you know the first and foremost it's um there there are cultural barriers and it's not the cultural barriers that you might think i think that you know if i can spend if i can spend time with the operators out in the field I generally can convince your, your tactical operators. And I use that term broadly. So my apologies to our SWAT community. It's, it's much more broader than that. It's, it's all of us out in the field in uniform doing, doing the enforcement work with, with those men and women. I can spend some time with them. I can talk a little bit of science. I can, I can maybe give them some experiential introduction to what it's like to breathe and pay attention to their thinking and to normalize so much of what they're experiencing as a result of occupational stress and trauma they're actually relatively, um, they're an easy sell and and they're an easy sell in large part because they're suffering and very little of what we are offering them is working. And so what I often get is a a really strong skeptical curiosity, which I think is a win. And and I love to work with skeptical curiosity. The other cultural barriers are are somewhat both cultural and organizational. Um, So let's talk about senior leadership in law enforcement. They are simply ill-informed across the board. And I know those are fighting words, but in 15 years of being in this, in this game, uh, I think it's an absolutely fair observation. Increasingly senior leaders are, are paying more attention to information that's available to them outside of their own institution. And they're going, Oh, that's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm increasingly working with those senior police leaders. Many other police leaders are very insular in where they get their information, their education. And um, if you stick with the standard sources of information from police leadership, you pretty much are going to get status quo. And what we know is status quo isn't working. 
So there's, there's that leadership piece. And then, and then the other organizational slash cultural piece is we built an entire institution within the institution around critical incident stress management and peer support. And this is where a lot of your audience is probably going to get pissed at me. Um, it is a model that isn't working. And instead of looking to transform this model and to sort of give it an upgrade, um, many of those folks in that community hold fast to the status quo and they don't want to release it. They, they, they're convinced that um, everybody needs critical incident stress, trust, stress debriefings. They're convinced that peer support is the right, first of all, the right paradigm. And, and so they hold fast to those things. And then we continue doing the same kinds of psychoeducation, sometimes, well, I think frequently not very well. Um, and we create a whole lot of drama around trauma. And, and frankly, we're creating these institutions are creating a victim mindset, a fixed mindset around trauma. And what I would offer Garrett is that I want the men and women in uniform to have a mindset that I experience trauma. I move through it skillfully. And with a period of recovery, I will come out stronger than when I started. The CISM model essentially says trauma happens to me and I need help. And, and again, I just opened up a huge arena for all kinds of fights and hate mail. And, um, hopefully they'll direct those to me, not to you. Uh, you know, but it's, we really do need a makeover. We need to innovate. We need to really look at what is the science of medicine, the science of interpersonal neurobiology and the science of human performance. How do those things today inform us on how we lead forward? And, so, yes, there's some interest in mindfulness, but in some ways it's almost um, bringing it into models that don't work. And so I think we still need to hold mindfulness training in a space that is a little bit counterculture, not counterculture to the needs of the men and women, but counterculture to the organizational bureaucracy that's been born and, and cultivated over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me that you're kind of hitting on something I've, I've discovered and I've found and I think I've fallen victim to myself that when a critical incident happens, there is a growing assumption that it will induce trauma and that we, and, and I think it's an, it's an over, it's actually a, a well-intentioned response by our agencies to, to serve us. But it seems like more and more as these things come into the department, and mine included, the assumption is that a trauma incident happens, therefore you must seek some sort of psychological help or you, or you will be damaged by the event. Not that you are resilient in advance of the event and you can move through it, but this event is going to damage you, it's going to traumatize you, and you are going to need help. When that's not necessarily the case, and we sometimes set our people up for this assumption that a shooting or uh, a bad traffic accident or those sorts of things are going to cause trauma or or as I should say trauma that we can't work through versus building the resiliency in advance which I think is a real part of the work you're doing is what helps us move through those things and I'm not sure if I'm I'm putting I'm completing the circle of thought for you here but you know they they want to help but they're kind of Overparenting and helicopter parenting this style of, of police psychology or psychology trauma on us versus giving us the tools in advance. Is, is that making any sense to you? You know, it does make sense to me. And I think there's, there's a, um, there's a lot to unpack with that, Garrett. And, um, you know, if I could, um, 
I, first, a couple things to say. One is that, that you know, even uh, I'm critical of some of the things that we're doing as an institution. Yet, there's no one, there's no malicious actor here. Just to be sure. clear, you know, yeah, yeah. Really, really, um, our our police leaders and community leaders are very well intended. Yeah, um, and I think it's important to hold to hold to that. There's no need to vilify anyone here. Yeah, no, um, I wasn't trying to suggest that. It was all out of good intentions. No, no, no. That wasn't. That was really trying to make sure people understand. They hear me say that because gotcha. I know you're not saying that, but gotcha. I don't want to gotcha. be that you know that asshole that you know people are like, well, you know. Anyway, you know how yeah, it goes. I got you. So, um, and I think this notion that you're talking about training before the trauma is critically important. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a all caps and when we train men and women in policing, I think we need to be honest with them and we need to tell them the truth. And the truth is this, you will experience stress injury multiple times over the arc of your career. Mm-hmm. And there's another and, and you are a badass and with appropriate interventions and recovery periods, you will come out stronger than when you started. Mm. Mm. The thing about that, though, is it requires a lot of work, right? Yeah. A lot of work on our part as individuals, and it requires a lot of work on our, our, our each other for you and I to support each other. When when I'm feeling trauma injured and, and, and I have some uh, need for interventions, then you support me, right? And, and, and vice versa. And I think these interventions that we're talking about to oversimplify, there's four things. And the first one is medical intervention. And, you know, that's obviously seeing a medical doc and ideally someone who's practicing integrated medicine to look at a lot of different things to treat your whole person. The second form of intervention that's critically important for us is psychological intervention. And one of the things that I say, and, and this is increasingly becoming accepted, which is a little surprising to me, is that I believe this is the one area that I'm prescriptive for all first responders. I believe that you cannot navigate your career in optimum health and performance without having a mental health clinician that you see on a regular basis, not because you're broken, not because you're fucked up, but because it's smart. And the mental health clinician who's skilled, someone you have some synergy with, someone that really works for you to become your mental health coach, just like the CrossFit coach, just like the running coach, just like the strength coach, um, to keep your shit together. And that's critically important. So that medical intervention, the psychological intervention, and then there's the social intervention. And this is where our peer support community fills, fills the void. And I would rather, instead of calling us peer support, I would rather use terms like an embedded resilience team or peer resilience team, because who wants to go somewhere where it says support on the door? You know, um, no, it's not about support because we're fucked up. It's about let's create more resilience. Let's create resilience coaches instead of peer support personnel. And, and let's really look at evidence-based coaching methods instead of some, well, let's wallow in the victimhood of being traumatized. Um, and I'm not trying to minimize trauma injury. It's very real and it will happen to us, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be mild. It could be severe. So it really just, it just depends on, on the situation. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and so the fourth area is in, um, one that I, I mentioned, but I don't spend a lot of time talking about because it's outside of my wheelhouse, but it's spiritual intervention. So what does that mean? So I think, you know, the more I learn about science, Garrett, the more I realize there's so much we don't know. <laughs> you know, there's, there really is this like mystery. And, and sometimes I jokingly call it the pure fucking magic of, of the science. And there's, there's so many things we don't know. We don't know why mindfulness works. Like, seriously, we don't know why. We don't know why we see structural changes in the brain from meditation on a regular basis. 
but damn if it doesn't really change people's lives, right? And so to hold on to a little bit of that mystery, that spiritual peace, maybe folks have a faith practice, you know, they, they, they stay connected to, or, or they, you know, they dabble in that here and there, but just to really ensure that we are holding our spiritual existence as human beings in some way mm-hmm. is critically important too. So those four interventions over the arc of our career in varying intensities, in varying situations, medical intervention, psychological intervention, social intervention, or I like to call it tribal sometimes, and spiritual. Those are all areas we need to go to in our periods of recovery and also in just our periods of just sustaining our health and well-being. I uh, talk a lot about the need to have a team around you, you know, and how it could be any one of these people or all four of these, but you need to have people around you who can support you like that and how it really takes a team of people to put one cop out on the street. And you hit on something that I've been talking a lot about recently and sharing was that uh, in episode 100, I had one of my coaches on, a friend, his name's Trevor Bohm, and he was talking basically what you said about psychological intervention. He said he's worried about the people in our profession who don't have a, a, a consistent therapy practice. You know, you should you should be equipped with a gun, a badge and a therapist when you go out on the street. And, and he's he's not worried about the people who are in therapy. He's worried about the ones who won't go because that they're the ones who are, who who he sees as struggling. And 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 it was in that conversation I was sharing some of my own path with that stuff and how. In 2017, I spent, I, I finally went in and, and, and tried, uh, some cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR and some other things, uh, after some symptomology came up, largely based on our talk and some other talks that I've had where I was like, okay, that's not appropriate or that's not the right response to this situation. I need to kind of dig into that. And it's something where, uh, even I didn't want to talk about terribly openly, even though I have this podcast and I talk about these things and the importance of doing them. I wasn't sharing that myself very openly until this experience. And I'm now on that same page with you of, of, of the need for preemptive, uh, cognitive help, th- cognitive therapy, whatever, whatever style of psychotherapy you want to choose and what you find valuable. It is as much part of our, um, preparation to go out on the street as it is our physical exercise and our eating right and our firearms training and all those things it has to be that that important i think i would agree and i just want to just acknowledge episode 100 first of all for episode 100 that's just fucking fantastic oh thanks man and and really garrett the courage and the strength that you demonstrated just doing that episode is exactly the kind of warrior strength that we need to see in each other and that exists, but that our institution and culture doesn't offer us a space to, to bring that to the tribal encounter. Mm. And, um, yeah. So thank you for doing that episode. Thank you for being that, um, incredibly courageous. And, you know, I've been thinking about this, this term vulnerability. And, you know, one of the things that your episode really got me thinking, uh, because we, we speak to vulnerability when we train in mindfulness, in large part, it is a cultural fallacy. Hmm. So if we think of vulnerability, it's like, I'm going to be vulnerable. Well, okay. What I'm really saying is I'm going to be courageous. And if I could offer your listeners any, anything that, that might be helpful is that when the term vulnerable comes up in context to themselves, if they could replace that word with courage or courageous or some derivative of courage, because that's really what we're talking about. This idea of, 
oh, I'm vulnerable because I'm here talking to you is a, is a cultural construct that just feeds negative thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it's so, kind of a victim so really movie. what I'm doing by being vulnerable is I'm actually being strong. Mm-hmm. I'm demonstrating, hey, I am a human being mm-hmm. and this is the condition of the human experience. And if we can stop this bullshit pretending that this is not part of the condition of the human experience, then we can have greater authenticity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so really when we talk about vulnerability, what we really mean is courageous authenticity. I like and we that. need to remove that term that starts with a V from our vocabulary. That's a great, uh, it's a great point. And it is courageous. It, it took a lot of courage to do that or for anybody to come forward and, and talk about those kinds of things. And, uh, I, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to start replacing that word because vulnerability does sound often, uh, often close to victim, you know? Uh, well, and, 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 and I think that that's, um, you know, in, in context to mindset, mm-hmm. this is one of my greatest hangups with, with our critical incident stress management slash peer support community. It's not the people, it's not the intention. It's not some of the really good work they're actually doing. It's the, it's the fixed mindset. And we could kind of go, we can, you know, run up the highway from where you are and we could go to Stanford and, and visit with um, Dr. Carol Dweck, who's mm. done research on mindset and wrote a book called mindset. Great book. Right. Exactly. You know, but this is what we're talking about. And so what we're trying to do is how do we translate Carol's work into practical, tactical skills and ways of thinking and being. And one of those ways is to jettison some of the terms in, in the context that we're using them. And also to, to have a growth mindset around trauma. And, you know, I, I love to go to trainings and I love to ask the question, Hey, how many of y'all heard about post-traumatic stress disorder? And, you know, of course, everyone raises their hand except for three people who just don't want to participate. Right. And I love those folks. And then I ask, you know, how many of you have heard about this idea of post-traumatic growth? And maybe four or five people raise their hand. And, and, and so what that continues to reinforce for me is that we continue talking about PTSD instead of, well, let's talk about post-traumatic stress. Let's even replace PTS with stress injury and trauma injury. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of these, these acronyms that foster negative context and fixed mindset. And let's really talk about the reality of what we know about occupational stress injury and the reality that Likely we are all going to be impacted by it probably multiple times throughout our career. And it's okay because we're a badass because we have the strengths of humanity because we're connected to our people and we are wise enough to seek the kinds of interventions that we need. And where mindfulness fits into this, it it cultivates a sense of self-awareness around how we think about things, literally how we think, what we think, when we think. And how regulated that thinking is. And it cultivates a connectivity to our feeling states, which are including emotions, but also other states that are not emotions, things like ego. How does my ego emerge? And just awareness of that and mm-hmm. be able to work with those things. It cultivates the, the awareness of our own biases that emerge just naturally as a human being and allows us an opportunity to work with that, right? And it cultivates this ability to connect with the physical body, the sensing physical body to reconnect with that. And those three arenas are not three separate arenas. They're all intimately connected. And if we can learn to cultivate awareness, bring in some compassion, because that's clearly important. I'd love to talk about what I mean by that. And to really synchronize this remarkable human machine in those three arenas, our thinking mind, our feeling states, and our physical body, we will be more capable of making more informed decisions. Notice I didn't say better, but more informed decisions about how we seek periods of recovery and intervention. Hmm. So 
yeah, more informed. You just have more information. I'm just thinking that right. through, but it's not. But you may come to the same conclusion, but you have more information on why you did that. that kind of well, exactly, and you know, and maybe noticing how you feel. Let, let's talk about burnout. Let's talk about this idea of burnout. And so, burnout often manifests. We wake in the morning and we just feel melancholy. Right. We feel melancholy. That's the scientific word for shitty in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> and so you wake up kind of feeling melancholy and you're like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? And so what a mindfulness practice can allow us to do is to observe that melancholy with curiosity. Mm-hmm. And literally in my mind, I might say to myself, Oh, it's curious or it's interesting that I'm feeling melancholy. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I might evaluate that. I might spend some time thinking about that. I might not. I might just say, okay, check noted. And then the next thing is, what do I want to do about that? And maybe nothing. Maybe it's like, oh, I'm just going to move through my day. It's cool. It's just, it's just one of those days. I, I know how to do this. And maybe on the seventh or eighth day, waking up feeling melancholy, maybe now it's like, oh, this is interesting. This is day seven. Doesn't seem to be changing much. Almost kind of feels a little deeper melancholy. Hmm. What do I want to do here? What intervention might I want to seek? And so now maybe it's, I'm going to go to my medical doctor. Hey, doc. Check me out here, run some tests, you know, what's my blood work look like? How, how's everything going in my body? Is this disease in the, of the body or is this some kind of illness? Is, is this stress injury of the mind and heart and body? You know, and then so we can start there. Maybe I'm just going to go straight to my mental health clinician, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or some other wise choice, more informed decision about how to care for myself rather than falling into this habituated, maladaptive, unconscious response of just being in melancholy and everything around me suffers because I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. Which is what we, I think as a, as an industry really gravitate towards. We, we are so uh, in that hypervigilant state constantly that it, it requires, to me, it seems that in a, in a profession like ours, the, the effort required to, remain mindful and then be proactive about it is exponential versus someone who is not in a high stress position, right? Uh, because not only are we trying to, are we struggling with the stress of the shift and the organizational issues and the bad sleep because we're on night shift, et cetera, et cetera. We then have to come up with the extra cognitive energy and the extra enthusiasm to do something about that melancholy. And I think as a result, that's why we seem to struggle so much more than so much of the general population. Do you, would you agree or disagree with that, you think? I think that's absolutely right. You know, and data from uh, John Violante out of Buffalo, New York, and his, his work has suggested, or no, I shouldn't say suggested, has demonstrated that police officers suffer twice the rates of clinical depression as the general population. And, you know, you might not think that's a big deal, but really when you dive into that data, the general population clinical depression rates are out of control. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on one hand, we're twice as good at that. I guess, you know, we can joke about that, but it's disturbing that, you know, so many of us are at varying times in our careers diagnosable, not necessarily diagnosed as clinically depressed. And, you know, the diagnosis isn't really that important. What's important is that most of those things are, are un- un- unintervened. And so there's very little that's being done to work with that other than cultural maladaptive behaviors, which is one of the reasons that we, we see, um, such a poor mental health report card for men and women in law enforcement. So what are the things, you know, for someone who's trying to wrap their head around this whole idea, they've never heard of mindfulness before or this is, or to them, it's this, 
woo-woo thing that's offered at yoga retreats, and they're not really familiar with it in the practical context of it. But they want to be more self-aware. They want to be more aware of their feelings and how it's interacting with themselves. I mean, we go off topic real quick, but earlier this year I introduced, I don't know if you've heard it, but I've introduced this idea of badges. And it's our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And my belief is that those six things, those six points of that star all interrelate. And if we can focus on those six things, then that is where our awareness comes from. And that's how we become better. So in that context of our, our beliefs and our emotions, I think people are wanting to learn how to be more self-aware, but maybe don't know where to start. What is, what are the first steps in something like that? A really, really good question, Gareth. And you know, um, I, I've been I, I've been a student of stress and trauma, of recovery, of resilience, of human performance for 15 years now. And what I have learned is that in order to cultivate self awareness, we have to learn to sit with our own shit, and we have to learn how to pay attention to how we think to our patterns of thinking, to the nature of our thinking. We have to learn to really to listen to this inner critic that we all have. And and once we are attentive to those things, then we can begin to work with our thinking mind and we can begin to transform this inner critic into an inner coach. And also, so the second arena that we work in is our feeling states. We also have to be attentive to understanding one, just what emotions are from a scientific standpoint, you know, and just real quick on that note, you know, we all kind of think that emotions are some sort of uh, optional thing that they, they make us weak. In reality, emotions are part of our human experience. And, and even I'll even go further. A lot of times we dismiss each other, you know, men dismiss women frequently and say, well, you're just being emotional as if emotion and rational thinking don't exist in the same space. And that's entirely non-scientific. Mm-hmm. And so how that impacts us culturally is that we feel like emotions are, are some sort of um, thing that we can control or not have. And the truth is emotions will emerge in the middle of our operational lives or administrative lives and our other domains that we perform in. They'll emerge. They just will. And they'll emerge sometimes in the most inconvenient ways in intensity and in how they, how they're shaped, you know, what kinds of emotions they are. And so what we need to learn is skills and just recognizing, Oh, anger is emerging. This is interesting. I'm talking with Garrett and huh, interesting that anger is emerging. Okay. I can work with anger. And then I, I just work with it because I've cultivated the skills to do that. Um, what we often do is we fight with emotion that's emerging. So out in the field, you're on a radio call, maybe you're running code three lights and sirens, and you're going to a really interesting call and you're feeling some fear. And so not only are you feeling fear, but now what we, we socialize you to feel judgment because you're feeling fear. And now, so you're spending cognitive and physical energy in this judgment cycle and in this emotion cycle. And the emotion becomes so intense that you're not regulating it well. So now you have this dysfunctional emotion that's present with you in the radio car as you roll to this place. And so you don't have full cognitive agility when you arrive. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to train is emotions. Yeah, they're just part of the package, folks. And they make you actually badass. You need that fear. You need that anger. You need that emotion that's emerging so that you can perform better. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's, that's a, another talk maybe too, but, um, but working with emotions is critically important. That is a component of self-awareness. And we learn to regulate them, not control them. Really, really important difference. Control implies you have a switch, you can turn them off. Absolutely not true. Regulation implies that you're aware of them and you can work with them. And the other um, area of self-awareness is just paying attention to the physical body. You know, one of the exercises I do in training is um, I'll just have people sit there and, you know, it's, it's a, maybe it's a classroom environment and I just have people sit there, close their eyes, take a couple of deep breaths and just feel their physical body. I did this just yesterday with a group of social workers and the people reported, they're like, oh, you know, I noticed this really serious tension in my shoulders and neck that I didn't really know was there. And someone else reports, yeah, I got this, this muscle in my back that's really tense and kind of hurts. And I, I had no idea that that was going on. And we do this. We disassociate from our physical bodies. We become almost, um, as one of my favorite psychiatrists, Bessel van der Kolk, likes to say, we become disembodied with this vessel that we're in. This is our container and you think we can really be connected to it, but we're not. And so self-awareness is about all those three arenas. You know, again, the thinking mind, the, the feeling states and the physical body. And in 15 years of research as a student, as literally as a researcher, as a trainer, what we found is that mindfulness meditation is one of the most effective ways to train skills in self-awareness and in self-regulation. It is the fundamental baseline for all peak performance. And people may not have heard the term mindfulness, and I, I, I'm really tiring of the term, but really at the end of the day, it's attention training to all those arenas. And it's difficult attention training. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy work. And it's also compassion training because when you sit there and listen to your batshit crazy thoughts in your head, if you don't bring in some self-compassion, you're going to fall down the rabbit hole of self-judgment and self-criticism and you're going to be, you're going to defeat yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is why awareness and compassion are skill sets that we train in this thing called mindfulness that literally, man, can become a superpower. You mentioned compassion a couple of times. Talk about that a little bit and, and that self-compassion because we are always told we need to be compassionate with the public or with other people. But what about ourselves? Yeah. This is my favorite thing, you know, and for the police leaders listening, um, one, thank you for the work you're doing. And two, compassion is a skill. It's not a directive. Mm -hmm. And so we put cops in a room and we tell them, we put cops in a room and we tell them, be compassionate. And it's, it's not a cognitive directive. It's, it's a, it's a thing that we have to teach them how to do. Compassion is a skill. And what we know about compassion is that it erodes as a result of trauma. So what we're saying then is we have to practice this skill of compassion. And let, let me give you an operational definition of compassion. Compassion is fierce. It is kind and it holds boundaries. I've just defined warrior compassion. Hmm. Now it's kind, it's not nice, right? Yeah. And, and it holds boundaries. And so that's an operational definition of compassion. And let me talk about compassion and empathy. Both are skills. And, and some would say, you know, there's a lot of interesting research around compassion right now. And there's a lot of scientists that have really interesting ideas that are that are, you know, of course, grounded in research, um, and, and they even differ in the communities out there. And that's all good. That's all really interesting for us. But, but practically, tactically, compassion for us, if we think of it as fierce, kind, and holds boundaries, and then we think of it as a skill. And so compassion and empathy are both skills. And what's important to understand is that compassion is this. Compassion is, Garrett, I see that you're suffering, and I'm here to do something about it. Empathy is, Garrett, 
dude, I see that you're suffering and I'm feeling your suffering with you. It in fact can immobilize my ability to take action. Hmm. So part of compassion holding boundaries is me holding boundaries so that I don't move into empathy when I see the suffering of the people I serve. Hmm. Now, it, there's, this is a gray space that we're in, right? It's not a clean, clean cut. Mm -hmm. There are times, you know, when I was a police officer, when I worked with certain populations, you know, like it was really difficult for me. For example, I remember my first, um, I guess we call it a SIDS death where an infant died in the crib, you know, and, and that was really hard not to be in a state of empathy. Mm -hmm. I was not able to hold those boundaries, right? With the parents and that was rough. Other cases with children, it was really difficult, but you know what? It's one of those things that you can do it. You can, you can be empathetic if you, if you control it wisely, right? But for the most part, just probably like you, many of the radio calls that I was on, I held some boundaries and I didn't step into the feeling states of that human suffering mm -hmm. because my job was to be there, was to be, was to be that compassionate warrior that was there to do something about it. Right. And I think that's a really critical difference. We talk about these, these things of compassion and empathy. Um, and we can train to both of those things. And what we know from a lot of research across populations is that mindfulness training improves our skills in compassion and empathy. And, and it keeps us from becoming burned out. So a lot of times we, there's a couple of things going on that are really interesting. Um, we talk about burnout a lot in this profession and, and, you know, for a long time, and I see it periodically, I don't see it too much anymore, but you know, I see a lot of trainings around compassion fatigue. And I just want to say right now that compassion fatigue doesn't exist. It is, it is a fallacy. It is not grounded in science. You cannot get fatigued from being compassionate. Now remember, compassion is fierce, kind, holds boundaries. And in, in practice, it looks like, Hey, Garrett, I see that you're suffering and I'm here to help. Okay. Um, what we're really talking about is what's known as empathic distress, which means in helping professions, when we are feeling too much into the suffering of others that we're helping and we get lost in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's important to understand the difference there because one of the things culturally that I think we do to respond to empathic distress is shore ourselves up and become non-compassionate. Mm, okay. When in reality, that's one of the worst things we can do for our own health and well-being, for the health and well-being of the people that we love and for the people that we serve. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say cognitive fatigue doesn't exist. I mean, I use that term and I understand your point and and how you go about it differently. Because, but the experience of it was like, oh man, I whatever you, whatever label is on it, I've had it. You know, I've I've been out yeah. there burned out and yeah. I just I, I'm tapped out emotionally on giving a shit about whatever your problem is. And um, you know, it's uh, I say that ebbs and flows, uh, and and it was certainly there in a point. Uh, where it was more consistent and it was one of those things where I was working on my self-awareness to be like, huh, that's interesting. Why, you know, why, why is it, why am I tapped out like that? Um, but to, to some of the guys who, well, let me, let me, let me, let me tell you this. Okay. So I got an email yesterday and it was from a listener, a new listener. And it sums up, I think what a lot of us are feeling uh, and how we struggle at times. Um, he said he's got, about two decades, a little over two decades with an urban department. And he's had some on-duty injuries. He had a surgery he had to do. Uh, and of course, after a lot of, a lot of us, after a surgery, you stop being as physically active, you get a little heavier. 
stress was building, the tension was building with his family, and he knew he needed to make a change, but he was frustrated because, uh, and, and this was where we connected, it was like he felt like he knew what he needed to do. He knew the facts of step one, step two, step three. He knew what he needed to do to make the changes, but he just couldn't figure out how to implement the changes that he knew he had to make. And like I said, I could relate to that. So from a mindfulness perspective and from the work you do, what do you suggest are those first steps towards making some of those changes? And I think I'm asking this question now because it comes to that idea of self-compassion. But can you, can you answer that? What are the first steps someone who knows what they need to do but has a hard time just implementing? What, what do they do? What are steps one? Yeah, that's that's a really difficult question and it, it's a tough arena right of um the this dissidence between what we know we want to do and actually what we do and i think we all live in that space garrett you know we all have things that we're like oh man i really want to do this i really want to change my behavior in this way and yet i'm gonna I just, just for whatever reason i can't get through that you know um I think there's a number of firsts to do and there's some parallel tracks and, and I would say, let's talk about three parallel tracks. The first one is go have a physical, go see your medical doc, get a physical, get your metrics, check in with the doctor, see what intelligence is available about your physical body and your health and well-being. Because there may be some underlying things going on, mm-hmm. right? That, that are, there are obstacles that you're not aware of. The second thing is, <laughs> Yeah, we'll love this. Um, have that same check-in with your mental health clinician and ask your mental health clinician to hold you accountable. Set realistic goals with your clinician and ask them to hold you accountable and then set an appointment to go see them 30, 60, 90 days later, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And the third thing is, um, baby steps, baby steps, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I would say within this arena of baby steps, this is the take care of yourself. This is, you know, depending on what your behavioral change goals are, you know, it's going to the gym, it's going to the pool, it's going to your faith practice, it's it's working on relationships, all of those things in conjunction with those other two things we talked about, you know, your medical doc and your clinician. Um, one of the components that, that would certainly be helpful, but it's not available to everybody, nor does everybody want to do it, and that's okay too, is really learning how to cultivate self-awareness through things like mindfulness or martial arts practice or some kind of mind-body intervention, yoga, tai chi, qigong, you know, various kinds of interventions that get us connected back to our physical bodies. And and what happens when we connect back to our physical bodies and our emotions and our thinking is there's almost an enlightenment that begins to happen. And, And it doesn't happen in a flash. It's not some sort of great transformational thing because you took a yoga class, but you begin to pay more attention. And you begin also to offer yourself some more compassion. And this idea of self-compassion is critically, critically important because, you know, um, let's say I have a goal to stop eating chocolate or sugar period, right? And chocolate is my kryptonite, right? And um, when I have sugar, then all of this negative narrative begins. This inner critic emerges. And not only did I just eat, you know, I just drank a, a, a soda, but now my mind is creating this narrative that yes, I drink the soda and I am an unworthy person. 
right? Mm-hmm. And all over, you know, 32 ounces of, of Coke, like really, you know, um, but this is what our minds do to us. And so to train the mind alongside this goal of training the body or the spirit or whatever it is we're trying to achieve is critically important. And I would submit that, you know, your, your badges toolkit is phenomenal. If we could combine some fundamental mindfulness training along with it, people could use uh, tools like that with greater skill, with greater self-compassion and really greater efficacy. Mm -hmm. But part of our problem is we put all these demands on ourselves about change and realistically, it's really, really difficult to achieve change in the time frame that we give ourselves, right? Instead of, no, this is, this is a long haul. We really need to step into this marathon of personal development and growth called a practice. Mm -hmm. But instead, you know, our, our negative narratives emerge and, and paralyze us. Yeah. So. And then we're like, well, fuck it. I'm going to just keep drinking sodas then, you know? And the next thing you know, you weigh an extra 15 pounds and you have adult acquired diabetes, you know? But your goal was to get rid of that shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny because even, even though I like to think that I'm aware of these things and in, I think in the last year, I've done a lot of work on identifying these things in myself. I even myself just yesterday found, uh, I started a new workout program, totally new thing. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to really nail down my morning routine. So for the last month, I've been up at 5 a.m. every day. I've had, uh, zero alcohol during that time. I'm trying to eat as clean as I can and, uh, stepped on the scale and like hadn't lost a pound right in three weeks and was like furious, uh, for a second that, uh, that the scale hadn't budged, disregarding all the other evidence that, uh, my shirts were fitting tighter in the sleeves that my, that I was actually being able to close some of the jackets I couldn't wear before that, you know, the evidence was there that I was building muscle, not just losing fat. Right. But, dis- but despite all of those other good metrics, I was focused on the one that told me I was failing and I had to catch myself. Right. And, and literally kind of mentally throw that scale away. It's so easy to get into that trap. And, and I've said it before too, like, we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never talk to another human being, right? We don't talk to our kids when we want our kids to achieve something. Like I'm going to go coach my my son's little league baseball game later today, right? And I'm never I'm not going to yell at them on the field the way that I hear it in my own head. But so why is it always okay that we endorse that 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 language with ourselves, but we would never say those things through our mouth to somebody else? You know, it's such a challenge. Well, it is such a challenge, and you know. Um... It, you might offer yourself a gift and just throw away your scale at home and use right. more at the gym. Um, uh, it's really good advice, I think, for for folks. One of one of the uh, Jason Seib is a trainer that uh, I've worked with in the past. This is phenomenal. He's just like, why do you have a why do you have a scale at home? Seriously, get rid of that. It's just it's shit. It's not helpful, you know. Um, so there's that. Yeah. But um, you know, here's what we know about our thinking mind, and this is what's really important. So. You know, you've just described this narrative that we all kind of have this incredibly negative, this inner critic. And, you know, we all kind of walk around because we don't talk about that. We don't normalize that. We all think, well, I'm the only motherfucker here that's thinking negatively about myself. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the lineup and briefing and, uh, and, you know, and you're kind of having an off day and you're kind of feeling shitty and, and you have this negative narrative and you're like, I'm the only motherfucker here that is feeling this way. Right. Cause all these, other, all these other brothers and sisters, I mean, they're, they're ready to go. They're rock star warriors, but I'm the only one here that's feeling this way. And that's complete bullshit. The truth is we're all working with that inner narrative. And the thing is, is that it's not enough to be aware of it. So 
here we are having this conversation. Yeah, we have a negative inner critic. Cool. Okay, go on. Don't be negative. That will not work. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is retrain it. Mm -hmm. And the only way that, that I know and my team of researchers and trainers know how to retrain it with any kind of success is training meditation. It's the craziest thing, dude. I'm telling you, it's, it, you know, it's, I absolutely believe this and the evidence that we've researched with police officers supports it. And what we're doing is we're working with the thinking mind. We're listening to that negativity. We're offering some self-compassion and we're ignoring it mm -hmm. again and again and again. We keep coming back to the negative thinking. We listen to it. We ignore it. We focus our attention on something else. We begin to focus attention on positive things. We do this something called a compassion practice or in other circles, it's known as a loving kindness practice, right? Yeah. yeah I've, I've and, recommended that. Right. Table. Yeah. And so we offer ourselves compassion. We say things like, may I be healthy? May I experience joy? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I add some other fun things too, you know, like may I be resilient and have clarity and, and there's all kinds of things to do, but we begin to do that. And it literally begins to disrupt the neurological activity in our brain that is negative and it rewires, it transforms the neural pathways of negativity mm -hmm. towards those that hold compassion and realistic positivity. Mm -hmm. And that's how we do it. That, um, that practice of loving kindness was, it was something I, <clears throat> I started, I think in 2017 and I've gotten away from it recently. So when you just said that right there, it sparked it in me. But I think that was really the impetus to me developing a lot of the skills that have helped me turn the corner on a lot of things. And, and I don't know about yours, but I mean, I, I got it from Pema Chodron and reading her, but for people who are, who are listening, it's a, it's a, it sounds weird, but it's a very wonderful practice and you feel it takes 30 seconds and you feel really good at the end of it. This is what I do, but, um, you, you first wish for yourself to be happy and find uh, happiness. And you're doing this while you kind of take some deep breaths. And then you think of somebody close to you, uh, somebody within your immediate family, maybe your wife or your spouse or your, your son or daughter or mother or father. And you wish for them to find happiness as well. And then you think about someone who's one more step out from you, maybe a coworker or somebody you work with, somebody, uh, a friend of yours. Uh, and you, and you think about this and you say their name through it. And you say, you know, I, I wish that so and so finds happiness and health. And then you move another step forward to somebody you uh, may not like or may not know. And the, the one you may not like is an, is an interesting challenge. Uh, you know, it might be that captain that's just up your ass all the time. Or uh, it could be uh, uh, someone on your, on your squad who, who's slacking. But you wish you say their name and you think and you say it to yourself. I wish them happiness and health. And then you move to someone you don't know, someone who could just be a, a an example, the beggar on the corner, or or um, someone you've heard about on the news, and wish them health and happiness too. And it expands this idea out beyond you, but it is incredibly calming too. And um, you feel, I think you feel good because you've now thought good thoughts for other people, but you've included yourself in those thoughts. That's been my experience with that. Yeah, you nailed it. And and there's a lot of ways to vary that practice and make sure. it longer, make it shorter, offer different affirmations and, and different things. Um, but that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's a powerful practice. And, you know, here's the thing that we're striving for. There is this this concept called equanimity. 
And I remember going through my training at UCLA to become a certified mindfulness trainer. I was the only cop in the room, of course, surrounded by a bunch of really amazing people, social justice advocates and mental health clinicians of varying degrees. And they all were throwing around this term equanimity. And I was just like, you know, kind of like the, the dumb cop in the room, like, well, okay, what does that mean? You know, and they look at me like, well, how dare you not know what that means? And, and then, of course, they coached me up. And over time, I really explored this notion of equanimity. And, you know, um, I've heard it described uh, by contemplative teachers as an unshakable balance of mind. Hmm. Or, or I've also heard it described as um, neither indifferent or apathetic, but just grounded, centered as we enter into the world. And, you know, I think that um, this notion of equanimity is one that is critically important. And I think it is the end state for me. It is the end state of, of peak performance or flow states in the warriors community. And so to be able to move into the world, still experience all the things we experience, still take in all the data and to have this clarity of mind and this discernment and the ability to respond to the world around us rather than react because of our own dysregulated shit is really what equanimity is all about. And it's offering people the grace of humanity and it's really, it's a philosophical and even practical extension of this idea of diversity and inclusion, which is almost more of a political idea than it is in a practice. And if we cultivate this notion of equanimity, that we can move into spaces regardless of the color of our skin, our gender identification, where we come from, our education, our language, all these things, and just move into spaces and see people with compassion, but yet see them for who they are, not with our own bullshit getting in the way but really see people for who they are, respond with this fierce, kind, and boundary-holding compassion, that really is kind of what we're striving for. And we train towards equanimity when we work with the thinking mind, our feeling states, our emotions, and our physical body, and we synchronize those things to be able to have greater capacity to move into flow states in, in all of the domains in which we perform. Yes, tactically, operationally at work, that's critically important. But also when you order your Starbucks, you know, and your encounter, however superficial yet deeply authentic with that barista, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an opportunity for performance of a small connection on a human level. Instead of being on my phone, instead of not looking them in the eye, instead of disregarding them as a human being, which we frequently do as a society, mm -hmm. it's a, a short, brief encounter. Maybe say their name. They're wearing a damn name tag, you know, um, be human, smile, have some offer of some kindness to this person in large part because they're a person, right? And, and not to get bent out of shape because you got too much caramel in your macchiato, whatever the hell you're drinking, right? But you know, I'll be grateful that oh, I have this warm beverage that has caffeine. That was my end game. Um, and then maybe not have so much sugar in it, right? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I think equanimity is this, this idea that, that I really would like to start seeing more and more conversations and training towards in the law enforcement circles, because man, I think it so aligns and resonates with our warrior culture. Well, that's interesting. And yeah, we could talk a long time just about that. And I, and I can already see where that goes. Um, not to keep, so I don't want to keep you all day. I mean, I do, but I know I can't. Um, you've been doing a lot of new research too since the last time we talked and you've gotten some, some real buy-in, some well from from a big department, two big departments. Uh, but catch us up on the stuff you're working on now, because you just 
and I'll, I'll pause too. You just recently retired, congratulations, from full-time law enforcement and have moved into doing uh, your your mindful badge work full-time now. So this is your um, – it's been really fun to watch, too. Your, your, I mean, side hustle is such a, a diminishing term for something like this, but your your side hustle, your, your passion project – I like that better – your passion project moving into something that now has uh, the demand to warrant – the ability for you to do this full time. So, so tell us about what you've been doing. Yeah. So the, the side hustle has game now. And for <laughs> sure, I don't, I don't mind that term at all. Cause it, it for years, it was absolutely a side hustle. And, you know, I just uh, had to pull the pen from, uh, from the full-time day job in order to do this work. So, um, so I do a number of things. And one of the things I do is I sit on faculty at Pacific university up here in, in Forest Grove, Oregon, at the Graduate School of Psychology, which really we are the epicenter of the research and training in mindfulness and policing in North America. And we, we did the first research and we have done the most research. And um, in, in the world of academia, it's important for me to say that because mm-hmm. I have to give some uh, shout out to my team there. Um, we just, well, in 2017, we wrapped up a, a three-year study where we trained about 50, I don't know, 58 police officers in eight weeks of mindfulness-based resilience training. And we got some really good data. So let me talk about the data there. So that data um, showed that we were able to reduce cortisol levels in police officers with simply eight weeks of training. Hmm. That is that is phenomenal. Cortisol, the stress neurochemical, is responsible for inflammation in the body and, and driving epigenetics of disease and all kinds of problems, right? So we also were able to reduce anger and aggression. These are self-reported, um, valid scientific tests. Mm-hmm. We were able to improve sleep, improve pain management, reduce alcohol abuse, and some other measures. And so, you know, if I walked up to police leaders and community leaders and said, hey, we have eight weeks of training where we can reduce cortisol levels, anger and aggression, improve sleep, improve, actually, the one I missed was compassion and empathy. Um, what do you think, y'all? <laughs> and, and, you know, and really, we can say that now mm-hmm. we have valid research, randomized control trial, all the, you know, rigorous research methods. Um, and so that's what's beginning to get the attention of police and now community leaders. It's no longer police leaders. So we, we wrap that project up. We're still publishing some papers in various um, academic arenas around that. And we just started in November. We started a five year study funded by the National Institutes of Health that's looking at uh, the feasibility and the efficacy of mindfulness training in law enforcement at two agencies. Those agencies are Albuquerque, New Mexico Police Department and Portland Police Bureau in Oregon. And interestingly enough, both agencies are um, under federal consent decree. And so I think the training aligns nicely into some of the things that they're doing as a result of that. Hmm. And so uh, we begin training this fall. We're doing a whole lot of administrative things, setting things up and recruiting and um, intake and all of that right now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we're hopeful to see some results. And one of the things that we're looking at, and this makes some of us cops uncomfortable sometimes, but we're looking at the feasibility of mindfulness training to reduce police violence. So let me talk about that. So the state of California right now is, um, looking at this issue. The, the legislature in California is, is looking at this issue. They're introducing legislation around changing how we use force. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so there's a whole lot of pressure and how do we reduce police violence? And what I would submit is this. I really do believe that training and mindfulness, um, in conjunction with, with other whole person health training, you know, let's get physically fit and, um, let's train well in our tactical acumen. 
I, I do believe that we will be able to impact the human performance in the, you know, rapidly evolving dynamic, often violent situations that officers are confronted in. I also think we're going to see less force used. And when it's used, it'll be on track. It'll be more effective. And so we're minimizing the unnecessary force and we're making more skilled than necessary force. Mm -hmm. And this is our approach to training mindfulness to look at this idea of police violence. It makes sense. And we talked about this actually on our, on our last conversation together about how, and I think I described, um, if I remember correctly, it was a car stop and just being aware of that, uh, that's that heightened stress, you know, the, the rapid, the increasing heart rate and the, uh, shortened breath and those sorts of things and how being able to just recognize those things, identify them, and then, calm them through just the simple tools in on my tool belt of breathing and awareness and uh, giving some space, how those things can reduce those kinds of threats or those kinds of uh, assaults from happening or those, those people that police violence from happening when, when it's still reasonable, but not necessary. You know, I think that's where that seems to be in California here where we're living in this gap between or we're struggling with this gap and this idea between what is reasonable. And that's what we've always gone by. And that's what our benchmark has always been. I mean, since, you know, reasonably anyway. And now what they're pushing is necessary. And that's a, that's a wide chasm to, to, to cover from a legal standpoint. But from an, within ourselves, I think anybody can think about the difference between the opportunity to use. Uh, and the difference between using reasonable force and what is necessary and how if we have other tools in our toolbox for this, how we might be able to eliminate some of that. I think it makes sense. I don't think it's terrible. I don't think that's terribly uh, uh, controversial other, you know, other than that's the same word necessary that the California state legislature is using. Sure. You know, and, and to talk about the practical implications here of, of training, you know, we talked about obstacles early on in our conversation. And one of the obstacles is that mindfulness training cannot be delivered with any kind of efficacy when we train it like we do a lot of other things. So in other words, it's not just a four hour class on mindfulness is going to change your life. It's not something you, you wrap up in Molly gear and attach to your vest. It's, it's something that you embody. It's a, a set of skills mm -hmm. that you learn how to integrate into the rhythms of your life. And so you always have them with you. It's not stopping on duty and meditating. It's not pausing. It's, there's no pausing involved here. It's integrating these skills of awareness and compassion and regulation of your thinking, your feeling and your physical body so that you are more effective. You're more capable of, of taking data and making sense of that data and making informed decisions. And, and so the problem is, is that now we're struggling with, with the institution and the paradigms of how we train and we'll just come in and do a two hour talk. And they're like, I don't, I don't generally don't do that because it's not helpful. Yeah. Uh, I need at least one full day with you to get you over your own, well, your own shit based on the trauma you've experienced, the shit based on what culture tells you around mindfulness, just to get to a place where you can trust me, that we can do some things experientially that, that begin to make sense to you. But realistically, we need to sustain this kind of training over a, a long period of time. And that requires funding. Mm -hmm. And so the one obstacle to all of this around mindfulness is just funding. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, most agencies don't have much of a training budget to speak of. 
And when you start talking about, well, this is more than a two hour class or a four hour class, then uh, I don't know how we afford that. So I think one of the things that's going to be really critically important in the short run is to find funding through private foundations and other places that are willing to fund agencies to train. Mm -hmm. And eventually the federal dollars will start to align and they'll start to fund these kinds of models of training. But, you know, right now you may have a chief that really wants to train their folks, but they have no funding to do it. Yeah. You know, I went, I attended a class just two weeks ago now um, that was a lot of these kinds of topics. It wasn't specifically about mindfulness, but it was more about officer wellness and kind of the general big umbrella things that we need to do to, to be better. And it, it was valuable information, especially for people in the room who like never had a, a approached this stuff or, or gone after it. But <clears throat> as someone who's been digging into it for the last three and a half years was frustrated by the inability by a class and the style of just a class to be eight hours long, despite how much good information was in that class, that class was now over. It was the end. They weren't coming back, right? It wasn't. And that was go forth into the world with what you've learned. And there's and it, this is not the fault of the instructors or the curriculum or anything like that. It's just like you said, it's the way that we teach things as an industry. You know, you go to an eight hour class, you get post certified in that. And now all of a sudden you're blessed as an expert, whatever. The follow through on those things for a lot of people, this, that's where the, that's where the ball gets dropped. It seems. Yeah. So I want to talk about follow through. So one of the things that now that I, I have a different day job and I have some more room to do some things that I've been wanting to do for a long time. One of the things I'm going to do that will be a resource for your listeners is on a, on an app called insight timer. So that's insight timer. I have a, um, there's a group on there called mindful badge initiative, and I am going to record a number of guided meditation practices in, in a variety of different, um, I guess we'll say genres and those will be available for people to access for free. Oh, that's awesome. And so, and what I want to do is I want to create a tribe. So you can, you know, you create like any app, you create your account and you can join this mindful badge group. And then, you know, you can create, use a fake name if you want to, you know, if that makes you comfortable, but you can actually create some social connectivity there because only people who join the group are there. They're vetted by me on, on some very weak level. So let me be clear about that. Um, and it, so it's a closed group, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and really it's an opportunity to say, Oh, hey, hey, Garrett's meditating or you can send me a message or I can say, Hey, dude, you know, I haven't seen you here for three days or five days or 10 days or, you know, two months. Um, how's it going or whatever? But there'll be some guided meditations that my goal is to create some things. And I'm working on, I'm working on this. It's going to take me probably another three or four weeks to really finalize the practices that I'll upload and then, and, and then I'll add things ongoing and I'll add them for different communities. And, and by communities, I mean, within the first responder community. Um, but I want to have that as a resource for folks, you know, I've, um, so, so at the end of the conversation, at the end of the training, people have some place to go to go, okay, I want to try this. I want to try this meditation thing out. I want to go see what this is like. And, um, so that will be a resource for folks. Um, if they want to go check that out, um, maybe connect with me there, um, and then just know that it's going to give me, I need a few weeks in order to upload some things, but that's, mm -hmm. that's coming. So that's, that's going to be one free resource. There's plenty of other resources out there that you can pay for, you know, for guided practices, you know, none of which are culturally competent, but that's okay too. You, you can explore and, and kind of see what's out there. 
But if you're looking for a specific, you know, kind of more gritty, you know, trained by, yeah. you know, retired cop, then this is a good place to go. This That's the same timer I use. And as we were talking, I, I was like, oh, that's cool. And I opened it up and searched and I'm following you now. Right on. So, Excellent. And when yeah. that goes live, let us know because we'll make sure that uh, the followers know. That's a great timer uh, to use if you're just trying to get a handle on uh, on doing some meditation and wanting to try it out. And you're not sure you want to spend the money on Headspace or whatever yet or whatever. Uh, but I use it um, and, and have had success with it. So I'm looking forward to that. Other than the Insight Timer, Richard, where else can people find you and find out more information about you and, and follow the work you're doing? Yes. Yeah, so um, primarily right now, it's on my website, and that's mindfulbadge.com. Um, I do have an Instagram and Twitter account, but, you know, I am kind of hibernating on social media. I'm trying to sort out what, what does that look like. To be honest with you, I get really frustrated with people in this training community who take pictures with everyone they train with and post them on the website and tell stories. And I, I just, one, I find that incredibly annoying. And two, you know, if you and I train together, who the hell am I to put your picture on there and say, Hey, this is what Garrett's doing. And you know, Garrett's really struggling and here's his, you know, it's like, you know, fuck you. Don't do shit like that. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty quiet on social media mm-hmm. in large part because I'm not convinced it has a whole lot of value. And I know already people are probably pissed off that I said that and that's okay. But um, my website is always up and active, and that's really the primary source of um, of connecting. And you can you can get to me uh, via email there. But my email address is very simple. It's just Richard at mindfulbadge.com. Uh, we've got trainings upcoming. Uh, we're doing a training at the end of next month up here in Oregon. It's a three day residential retreat. Those are really fantastic. We're doing another one up in uh, Vancouver Island uh, in June. I think in Tempe, Arizona, sometime in April or May, we're still working out those details. So, you know, the West Coast is going to get uh, a number of these retreats. And, um, you know, I did I did throw my hat in the ring for some grant funding through California Post. Um, I'm an amateur when it comes to that stuff or the bureaucracy of grants. But, you know, maybe I'll get some funding and we'll do some really cool training. It'll be free in the state of California. But we'll see. Oh, great. And we'll include show notes or links in the show notes for this episode for uh, your email address and your website in case people are driving around and able to write that stuff down. They can go to the squadroom.net and get that information there and then reach out and, and contact Richard there. This is such a, um, I, I'm worried that people are going to, cause this is such a trendy word over the last year. I mean, I was in the grocery store last night and there was a magazine called mindful right next to people magazine. And I'm worried that people are going to see that this is a quote unquote buzzword these days and that it's a thing and that they're not going to look deep into how effective this stuff is uh, as someone who is practicing this, but is not a practitioner who struggles with a daily practice of it, but also um, tries to implement these things and often unsuccessfully, but at least trying my own life has, has, has drastically changed as a result of developing some of that self-awareness, some of that self-compassion, and it's made me a better cop and it's definitely made me a better supervisor and a better leader. So I hope that people really, really look into this, look into the work you're doing and, and see how they can implement some of these things in their lives. So thanks Richard for being with us today. Uh, fantastic conversation. I would love to keep you all day for this, but I know you've got to run. So thanks for being with us. Hey, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Garrett. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Squadron. If you like what you heard today and got something up out of the episode, please consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. And more importantly, share the episode with somebody you know. 
Richard's got a lot of great information on his website. He got a lot of great information here today. And I got to tell you, dealing with the self-awareness and the mindfulness stuff has been the number one game changer in my own path. You know, I'm, I'm walking this path with each and every one of you. And I'm in, in, in for some of you, maybe I'm a couple steps ahead, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a couple meters ahead of you on some things, but there's plenty of you out here. There's plenty of you out there who are farther ahead than me on some, on some things. And I'm, it's an ebb and flow. But the one thing I've found that has absolutely been crucial is developing that self-awareness practice and that mindfulness practice. Uh, check him out at Mindful Badge. And of course, you can follow me on socials at The Squad Room and join our Facebook group. And we'll talk some more about this and these ideas of mindfulness there in our Facebook group. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, always, you can reach me, Garrett, two R's, two T's at thesquadroom.net. That's my email. I respond to email. Uh, and uh, enjoy the conversations and the comments I get from there too. And I uh, just want to thank everybody for listening. This is now we're into our uh, triple digit episodes and um, conversations like this are always what keeps me going. Uh, getting up and knowing that I'm going to have an interesting conversation with someone and then I'm going to be able to share some interesting information with all of you. And especially when I hear from people that something hits home and that something has helped them make a change for the better. Uh, that's just fantastic. So I appreciate all of you for listening. Appreciate everybody who's out there on the watch right now, listening to this in their squad cars, pushing a black and white or whatever color your agency is. Uh, but who, those of you who have the watch, I've been off patrol now for a couple of months and I miss it terribly. I never expected those words to come out of my mouth, uh, when I left patrol. And it's when I left patrol that I, it was shortly before I left patrol where I was, struggling with some of the things that Richard talks about here, some of this burnout and some of those things and just needed a change for a while, but it really wasn't a change of scenery in my assignment that I needed. It was a change in mindset. That's all it was. Uh, but I, I still have, uh, I'm still attached to the patrol side, but I just, uh, to me, when I hear someone who's listening to these episodes in their car and it's night shift and it's three in the morning, it's freezing cold outside and they're driving around keeping everybody in check um, it means the world to me that you guys are spending your time with me. All right. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.